Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast on a beautiful Thursday here in the nation's capital. Coming up, we're going to break down what might have been the craziest, most unexpected week of politics I have ever seen, at least since Donald Trump's election. How did Joe Biden go from on his way out to on his way to the party's presidential nomination? Can Bernie Sanders get back into what now looks like a two-candidate race? And could Mike Bloomberg get back any of that half billion dollars he spent winning a single delegate? Join us every week as we take you inside the race for the White House in a way only McClatchy's 30 newsrooms can by talking about how the election is playing out on the ground in the states that will matter. I'm Alex Rorty, a national political correspondent for McClatchy, and today I am joined by Emily Cadet, a McClatchy political correspondent who, like me, is probably chugging coffee by the pint this week. Emily, welcome. I am. I can <laughs> confirm. Thank you. There's been a run on coffee in D.C., I think. <laughs> and we are also happy to have back on the show David Katniss, a national political correspondent for McClatchy, who also, like me, has turned probably semi-nocturnal this week, trying to keep up with the news. David, welcome to the show. Catching my breath, not catching many Zs. Exactly. But I'm- It's great to be here. (laughs) Good, good uh, response there. Okay, so a quick note about this week's show. We're going to split it into two parts. Today, we're going to focus on the candidates who remain in this race, where the contest stands today, and how it'll look moving forward. Tomorrow, we're going to come back and talk about the candidates who have left this race, what went wrong, and what their exits say about the Democratic Party. So if you're jonesing for discussion about Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Mike Bloomberg, or Amy Klobuchar, be sure to check back tomorrow. Okay, so I feel like every week when we start the show, I say we have a lot to talk about. This week, though, we really do have a lot to talk about. I'm going to try to be brief, but just to summarize where things are, a week after most Democrats weren't even sure Joe Biden would continue his campaign after South Carolina, the former vice president not only won the first in the South primary, he won it by a huge 29-point margin. And on Super Tuesday, he arguably performed even better. Biden won Virginia, North Carolina, Alabama, Arkansas, Maine, Massachusetts, Tennessee, Texas, and Minnesota. And most importantly, the real bottom line here, he took an overall delegate lead that he might hold all the way to the Democratic National Convention in Milwaukee. So, Dave, let me ask you the million-dollar question. How did Biden do this? Because I think we're all trying to catch our breath and we're all asking ourselves the same question. What happened that he was able to put this all together? I think after a year with flirting with 25 different options, people decided the stakes are too high, Donald Trump is too unpredictable, and we're going to go with the safe choice. You know, it's sort of that phenomenon, I keep going back to 2004, dated Dean, married Carrie. Who did they date in this case? Did they just they, date a lot? They it was like dated a, a lot. Dating? Well, yeah. there was a lot of different people that that I think voters and and you've written about sort of the college educated voters who've who've dated a lot of different candidates and moved around. And I shouldn't say you know the race is not over. Bernie Sanders is in the race. It's a it's it's a two person race for sure. But I think just name recognition and familiarity played a big role in this. And we wrote a little bit about this in our in our takeaways from from Super Tuesday about how much that was more important than all the fundamentals that we as junkies dive into, organization and field and money raised online, and whether you have the smartest state director. Not as important in the end when regular people, hundreds and thousands of them, by the hundreds of thousands and millions in some of these mega states, show up to the polls and decide who can beat Donald Trump. And you know, it, more more people than ever have now voted for for Joe Biden, which obviously didn't look clear a few weeks ago. But I think that the top line of that is momentum and the urgency to beat Donald Trump supersedes every other factor. And there are a ton of other factors that people had to decide. You know, Emily, let's 
look at it demographically, his support, yeah. because we had always expected, you know, from the moment he got into this race, the expectation was Joe Biden was going to do really well with African-American voters. And that seemed to hold through most of the campaign. In the last month, though, it seemed like that that started to get a little wobbly for him. It's yeah. not that he wasn't winning more support among African-Americans in polls than any other candidates. He still was. But the margins had come way down. You even saw that in some South Carolina polls. And it was one of the main reasons people weren't even sure when this it feels like so long ago now. But when <laughs> the South Carolina ago. primary started a week out after Nevada, people weren't even 100 percent sure that Biden was going to win the state right. anymore. But one of the major things, and it's more than this, but one of the major things that seemed to happen was the African-American vote consolidated around Biden and consolidated furiously and almost unanimously around him in, in some states, particularly in the South. Yeah, to me, the the story of Biden's comeback is really the story of black voters picking Biden. I mean, without black voters, Biden would be done. South Carolina, I think we all thought he would win. I don't think any of us expected him to win by such a large margin. But by doing so, he then signaled that he's the candidate who can win black voters. And you look at all the other candidates and the way they performed, not one of them, whether it's Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Klobuchar, even Bernie Sanders, that's been their like, across-the-board weakness as black voters. And I think that signal then sent a broader signal to voters who you know, white, brown, Asian, whatever, old, young, just want to beat Trump, that like, okay, the candidate who can actually get the black voters behind them is the one that has the best shot of building the kind of coalition that Obama did that won in 2008 and 2012. And so I think that then brought this onslaught of other support that we saw in Super Tuesday. But certainly... I didn't expect, I, you know, South Carolina surprised me somewhat. The Super Tuesday results surprised me like 100,000 times more just because <laughs> of the, the margins and mm-hmm. the way, I think, because of the lack of infrastructure he had. It seemed like even with South Carolina in his pocket, like the fact that he hadn't campaigned in California where he lost, but not as badly as we thought he might, or, you know, in Texas, he just didn't have a presence in any of those places. It's pretty shocking to me that he was able to rally that support. And I think that's like, there's two factors there, the black vote. And then on top of that, the signal that having the black vote behind you sent to a broader electorate. I mean, in the annals of political endorsements in the sort of modern history of the United States of America, it feels like the Jim Clyburn endorsement on the Wednesday before the South Carolina primary, long speculated, a lot of people thought that it was a foregone conclusion that he would endorse Biden, but he didn't give the endorsement, you know, until after the debate. That seemed like that that was the moment people will point to when they look back on this primary, particularly if Joe Biden does go on to win, as he's now, I think, favored to do, that it was the Clyburn endorsement that did it. Yeah. I I mean, it it is going to be the stuff of legends. I think people are going to be reading about that. Any, like, student of American politics several decades from now. I've always been someone who's skeptical about how much endorsements matter. Me too. That's what's so crazy about it. (laughs) Everything that I've seen, and certainly like our colleagues who report in South Carolina and did a lot of reporting on this endorsement and and Clyburn's clout, repeatedly wrote about and talked to people who said, and the exit polls showed this too, that Clyburn's endorsement mattered. And so that, it's always a reminder that, you know, we make these assumptions based on data points from past races, but there's always exceptions to the rule. And I think in this case, Clyburn's endorsement really was significant. I mean, personally, it makes me think Jim Clyburn should have run for president. And <laughs> he'd, be, he'd be the front runner of this race right now. Dave, I mean, you you and Emily both mentioned it. I mean, part of the, the surprise here is Joe Biden's campaign was close to broke 
And in fact, I listened to Anita Dunn on, on another podcast yesterday talk about how almost all the other campaigns had more money than they did um, in this race. He had almost no organization. He had some organization in South Carolina, but particularly in the Super Tuesday states, I mean, as the New York Times laid out in a very extensive article, I mean, he almost had nothing in these states. It feels like in this race anyway, momentum trumped organization and money in a way that we haven't seen in, in, in recent political history, at least not to this degree, I don't think. Yeah, and I think it's going to raise more questions about traditional metrics that we all as political reporters dive into. I mean, you can go back to the Trump race and now this, if Biden does hold on and is the nominee. You know, what are the things we dive into as political reporters and we jump in stories about its organization, it's it's certain staffers who have tons of experience in the state, you know. We read about Cory Booker's amazing organization in Iowa, how, how he hired all these smart, brilliant people. Like It's a story we love to write. Yeah. We love to write. Right. And then like online donations and all these different sort of you know, micro metrics which we use and you know polling is another one right that, that that we use and a lot of those super tuesday polls when we're off biden's people were telling me like it's all all the data is junk now given what's gone on the last 72 hours and it was right i'm still talking to people today who are like i can't make any predictions about what's going to happen next because i'm so confounded by what just happened and i think it's humbling for all of us right we should step back and and as much as we ran to the Bernie narrative building, now we're running to the Biden narrative, <laughs> and there's still a lot of game left. So I just personally, as a political reporter, I'm trying to pull myself back when I'm when I lurch to write that now Biden is inevitable, pull my hands off the keyboard and say, whoa, whoa, Dave, there's 60 percent or more of the delegates are still out there and a lot can happen in these remaining days. And it doesn't even have to take that long, right? 48 hours, a huge amount of time for voters to look at what's going on in a media narrative and change their mind. You know, it's a perspective. Hopefully we will integrate into the show as well. You know, we don't want to just wildly swing from one Mm. candidate to another. It has, however, been a just wild week. And yeah. and part of it, Emily, I mean, obviously a big moment in this race, after, not just him, the, you go from the Clyburn endorsement to Biden unexpectedly winning huge in, in South Carolina, winning the African-American vote, as you said. And then Pete Buttigieg drops out and endorses Joe Biden and Amy Klobuchar drops out and endorses Biden. And it just feels like all of the, the basically the non-Bernie wing. And I think yeah. that that right now... I mean, that would be the fear for Bernie Sanders, but it does appear to be that this the entire anti-Sanders coalition has picked a single candidate, and they did it in the span of about 72 hours. It shows you, I think, that there there is a level of unease, discomfort, dislike even for Sanders that was sort of latent. We saw that bubbling up with the concerns about the Bernie bros and the you know online vitriol, and some of that came out in debates, et cetera, but I think... That was a very strong undercurrent in what happened on Super Tuesday, and it should concern Sanders. I think that there has been a miscalculation on his side. Maybe it's just, I mean, Bernie is Bernie, and that's why his supporters love him, and so maybe there's just no way to change how he's going to approach politics or how he's going to approach this race. But it does seem like by not trying to be more welcoming of other elements of the party by kind of sticking with his very stringent, like, my way or the highway kind of message, when he had a chance to sort of 
consolidate support, he he missed that opportunity. And I, I guess I'll be curious to see how or if he now tries to kind of shift his footing a little bit, given the message that was sent on Super Tuesday. Because I think, especially, and you wrote about this, the, the suburban voters that pushed Democrats to control of the House in 2018, those are the voters that voted en masse for Joe Biden. And I think those they also decided late because they were you know weighing a lot of options and suddenly it became like, this is, this is the vehicle. <laughs> not necessarily that they love Joe Biden, but they think he is the vehicle to both like n- not nominate Bernie Sanders and potentially beat Trump. I, I don't know. There's a there's a lot to talk about with Bernie. I think the stretch that basically February that people are going to look back and kind of pick apart and ask whether or not Bernie could have done more to try to consolidate the party. You know, I, I remember reporting an article about it where the the message from the campaign very clearly was we think the existing message here is is enough. You know, the not me us message taking on the corporate elites, taking on the elites and all kinds of institutions for the common man was enough to bring on a sort of winning coalition in the Democratic Party. And I think that that belief deserves at least some scrutiny. Now, today's point, though, we don't want to throw dirt on the Sanders campaign just yet. There is basically roughly two-thirds of delegates have yet to be awarded in this race. Here are the challenges, Dave, as, as I see it for, for Bernie, because not only did Biden win South Carolina, but going forward, by all reports, his fundraising now is, is going like gangbusters. He's now going to have the money for ads that he didn't have in Super Tuesday. And some of the later states, I think he's also going to be able to put on the ground a little bit of an organization. Those things are not paramount, as we just discussed, but they can help. You know, they do help your margin a little bit. And, he, and now Bernie Sanders, you know, part of the reason he had success in Texas and California was the early vote. Part of the reason that Joe Biden's margins there or numbers there were lower uh, than you saw in some places like Virginia and North Carolina, that there was so much of the early vote that he didn't yet have the the momentum, hadn't quite consolidated as much as the party when people decided that's not going to be the case moving forward. So let's let's shift our attention now to, to Bernie Sanders. Then what does he need to do to, to get back in this race? What is his rationale now for trying to take on Joe Biden? So I think he really has to lean into a smarter electability argument about why he's a stronger candidate in the general election against Donald Trump. I mean, he's going to hammer his agenda, Medicare for all, you know, free college, job guarantee, Green New Deal. He's got to package that in a way that says, look, I may want this agenda. This is ambitious. But, but to speak to that voter who's like, it may be too much against Trump and it may turn off those voters that are not me, because we've just seen the evidence anecdotally of so many voters are not voting their hearts, right? They're voting with their heads because they're saying, well, the swing voter in Michigan, that's too liberal for them, and that may turn them off. So I think Sanders has to address that head on. I mean, he's going to have an ideological fight with Biden, right? We're going to head into a Michigan primary uh, next week where it's going to be about trade and NAFTA and then the renegotiated NAFTA. And that could be a potent issue for him. Mm -hmm. So I also think he needs to wield that, though, about why President Trump could hang that around Joe Biden's neck in a general election and cost Michigan for Democrats. I think he really needs to, to lean into that because in, in the end, like that's what voters care about now, especially that it's down to two. I think both of them are very defined. So it's not about introducing yourself or, or who you are anymore. I mean, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, most people, most Democrats especially have an opinion on. It's about leaning into who can win, who can beat Trump. And we know Biden's argument about that, right? He's been pointing to polls. Bernie has done it too. I think it's got to get sharper. 
now. Let's let's stay with Michigan for a second because it's a story that you and I are writing now. Actually, the symbolic importance of Michigan. You know, look, we we try to emphasize that this is a delegate fight for Bernie Sanders, and it really is. We're a delegate fight for Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. That that's what really matters. But symbolically, after everything that's happened, Michigan is an important state. This is where Bernie Sanders pulled off a big upset victory over Hillary Clinton in 2016 that gave his campaign new life. And of course, the general election symbolism for for him. What do we think the state of play in Michigan is? What are what are you hearing from people on the ground about his his chances there? You know, it's funny. Everyone is confounded by what will happen. They think the element of surprise is gone for Bernie. That was a big part of how he defeated Hillary there. I mean, I was told by by numerous Michigan Democrats, look, I mean, Bernie moved his Iowa team right into Michigan in 2016, and they were doing a lot more organizationally. Hillary was just kind of flying in a state, doing a rally at Detroit, flying back. I've, I've heard that, I mean, some people, some Democrats have told me that there were just a lot more Sanders ads, they felt like, too. There was just a be- greater also like a mo- of, of the feeling of a burgeoning movement is mm-hmm. what it was described mm-hmm. to me, whereas Hillary was eh, taking it for granted, which obviously caught up with her uh, <laughs> to much more consequence later. This time, but though pe- people are saying there, there's not, like Bernie Sanders' operation, paid staff, I'm told were moved into the state about 10 days ago. They have that volunteer base that's still there, but I think it's more of an even play with Biden. And, you know, what everyone keeps pointing to is Biden has momentum and now he looks like a winner. So there's going to be a lot of voters that look at that and are going to move right into the Biden camp. The question that people are raising, and again, that's the question mark, is are there moderate Republicans that are going to vote in this primary because it is open? And is that helpful necessarily to, to Joe Biden? You know, there's, there was one poll that showed a Biden with a minor advantage. But again, I'm, I'm cautious on this because there's so much time left and we're going to have the candidates in the state over the weekend making arguments, getting a lot of that earned media coverage that was mm-hmm. so important to Joe Biden, right? And, you know, I think we could see more endorsements before that. I don't know if it's at the Clyburn level, but, you know, in a in a state that I think will be closely contested, those could matter. What I will say is I think it's more important for Bernie than Biden. I think Absolutely. Bernie needs to Absolutely. win Michigan. If he doesn't, man, it really cuts against his narrative as a state that he was able to carry against Hillary in 2016, if he's not able to do it again, next Wednesday is going to be a really, really tough day for him, I think. Michigan and Washington State seeming like the big contest. You have other races, too. Missouri. Mississippi, Missouri. We shouldn't – this is the Kansas City <laughs> yeah, Star. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're not, we're not going to overlook Lowry Missouri, of course. <laughs> Lowry's going to barge through the door and start <laughs> yelling at me. But it, it, it does feel like Michigan has real significant value. Emily, the, the thing that became clear on Super Tuesday, I think – Part of the worry for Bernie Sanders, you know, he did really well in a lot of white working class areas uh-huh. in 2016 against Hillary Clinton. He's not doing as well this time around. If you look at, say, the Appalachia region of Virginia, yeah. for example, an area where I think he cleaned up on Hillary Clinton in 2016, Joe Biden's winning those areas now. And it makes you think this was something I, I feel like we're, we're bringing out a point from from six months ago that people used to make about Bernie Sanders campaign. But that from, you know, in 2016, part of his popularity was wrapped up in an anti-Clinton vote and yeah. an anti-Clinton sentiment. And that that has kind of been washed away as he rose up in the polls. But it seemed like it has resurfaced in a big way in the last few contests and maybe could again in Michigan. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say when you spoke about how Bernie defeated Hillary in those places, it might speak more to Hillary's weaknesses with those voters than it did to Bernie's strengths. And now you have a candidate in Biden who traditionally has been, I mean, working class Joe, like 
Scranton PA roots, you know, he definitely has rooted his political career in that sort of like old Rust Belt, you know, manufacturing era narrative. And he still has that base. It's it's changed. And, and we were talking about this the other day. The whole nature of labor has changed. But Biden has traditionally counted on labor union support, kind of Rust Belt support. I think it's one of the reasons that, that Obama brought him on the ticket right. when he did in 2008 was to appeal to that kind of white working class voter. The Scranton voters. Yeah, that, that, he, yeah. that Obama might not be able to appeal to. And so that is in a lot of ways, a tougher matchup for Bernie. It was interesting to me, two things that Bernie did in the last couple of days. One, he started running ads where he's touting his work with Barack Obama. I want to mention that. That, um, that looked like something, maybe an ad, basically it was an ad that was suggesting that Barack Obama really loved Bernie Sanders, yeah. which we've seen from, from Biden and Bloomberg. <laughs> right, and, and maybe an ad that I think people will wonder Maybe he could have run that earlier if yes. he was looking to. But but that's a sign of where his campaign is. Right I think now. so. And I think it, it speaks to this whole idea that maybe he's realizing he did need to be a little bit more um, not not offer an olive branch, but just be a little bit more uniting as a figure. He also, I thought at his press conference yesterday, was very, you know, deferential almost maybe is the wrong word but he he spoke very kindly of Biden in personal terms yes. he repeated several times Joe is my friend I respect him I don't want this to be a nasty race he sort of was really trying to tamp down some yeah. of the belligerence that has been associated with his campaign and I thought that was striking because you know this is now a two man race getting those two on the debate stage together they do have some pretty divided views on certain things and in particular trade, but I think that that Bernie is trying to do some of these things that we've talked about now, and the question is, is there enough time to, for him to sort of revamp and, and also rein in his supporters, because as much as he might say, I don't like the belligerent language, I don't like the attacks, et cetera, it's, it's, does that message distribute widely enough to the people on Twitter? Yeah, I mean, one one quick point, too, about Michigan, we're going to hear, I think Joe Biden mentioned the, the 2008-2009 auto rescue and mm-hmm. bailout an awful lot. I know some Democrats in Michigan were telling me that that will, as Bernie Sanders did at that press conference you mentioned, really start talking about the, their differences on trade. Democrats in the state will say, well, look, that is potentially a real issue for Biden, but he is going to be able to point to the auto rescue and bailout, which is obviously enormous popular in the state generally, but particularly among Democrats, as something of a, of a fallback position. I would also say, I mean, just kind of big picture, the concern for, for Bernie Sanders right now, his campaign, the electability argument is predicated on bringing new people into the system. Yeah. This is fairly clear even in the original, the first states, but it's, it's now a point that has really moved to the forefront after Super Tuesday. It's not happening. And in fact, the, the, the surge, the turnout surge, as it were, is happening in a lot of suburbs, a lot of former Republican or moderate suburbs, and it's happening for Joe Biden. And I just think that Biden's ability to make that argument, even in a debate stage with, with Sanders, is just really tough. Because as Dave said, a lot of this election, as we long expected, is coming down to who can beat Donald Trump. And Bernie's message this entire time has been bringing young people. I mean, Biden's ability to contradict that directly and forcefully with the evidence on his side, I think is a really tough thing for Bernie Sanders. It's going to be really tough in the next debate when I assume Joe Biden is going to make it. Dave, to your point, we don't want to just dismiss any idea that Bernie Sanders can, can no longer win this race. That, of course, is not the case. What are the reasons that Bernie can get back into it as, as far as you see? I mean, what are the, the reasons for optimism for his supporters? I think it's pointing at Biden, saying he could be Hillary 2.0. He's the establishment safe pick. 
and we tried this once, and if we don't get people excited, now to your point, that's tougher because Biden has the excitement right now, but this right. is his best hand to play. But the play of what, what Emily said, I think the softening of Bernie in that press conference was a realization that he knows he needs conversions, not new people. Mm-hmm. I mean, he needs new people, he just ain't getting them. Right. So he <laughs> right. needs to convert people, which means not, you know, batting them over the head, being like, this is the revolution, get on board. It's, hey, like, Joe's my friend, he's a good guy, but, like, we just have very different visions of how we move the country forward on policy and also how to defeat Donald Trump. So I also think that it's like, look, we need big, radical, structural change to get people excited as a movement candidate. Trump won as a movement candidate in some ways, right? Mm -hmm. And I think Bernie's best argument is, like, you know, I'm the antithesis of that for the left, for Democrats, and say, like, I mean, if I'm just being a put a strategist hat on, I would lean in that Biden is sort of Hillary redux. Hillary lost. Yeah. She was the establishment. How can we go with the establishment again? I mean, I'm just playing the Bernie Bernie mm-hmm. argument. Mm-hmm. I'll, you know, will he go that far? I don't know, because, you know, it's also sensitive in picking a fight with 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 those Hillary fans sure. um, who are who are Warren fans who are now, you know, up for grabs. So it's tough. I guess the big point is, like, it's going to be tough, especially given the states that he's got to go into. I mean, Florida, obviously, he's got big problems going into Florida yeah. against Joe Biden. A lot of Florida, are, Florida, I mean, one poll was really said, I mean, that could be a bloodbath. It could be a bloodbath, and that could be yeah. a huge delegate pickup, and yep. then you're looking at that, and they're like, there's no way back. So, like, yes, Sanders is the underdog. I think it's going to be very tough. But, you know... What if he has a big night in Michigan? There could mm. be there, sure. there could be if he has a you know big night in Michigan, double digit win or something, which isn't you know it's probably unlikely, but isn't beyond the realm. Like the narrative gets reset, so it's hard to look at states three weeks from now and those polls because they're going to change based on what happens next. We already saw that with the Super Tuesday sort of domino effect. Right, right. I mean, this isn't exactly a revelatory point because it's always true, but the debates are going to be big for Bernie, and I think mm-hmm. he really needs... One-on-one. On one, right. Finally. Right. You know, and, and not only does Bernie need a good moment, I think he really needs some bad moments for Joe Biden, which... Uh, which is entirely possible. possible. Totally in the realm. <laughs> totally in the realm. I, I would just point out, I mean, in part because an old colleague, Katie Glick, wrote the story uh, for the New York Times in the run-up to the South Carolina primary, but a story about how Joe Biden was, was going around on the campaign trails talking about how he had been arrested trying to see Nelson Mandela. Uh, I think this was back in the the 80s. And long story short, that wasn't true. Right now at the time, that didn't get a whole lot of attention because at the time, (laughs) most people didn't think that Joe Biden was was really at the top of this race anymore. Stories like that and other gaffes that, that Biden is, of course, prone to make are suddenly going to receive a whole lot more attention, be passed through the prism of electability against Donald Trump. And, and I think that's the the danger here for, for him. And that, and that could happen in a debate. I'm not saying that it will, but if I'm a Sanders strategist or if I'm even a Sanders supporter, I think that's what I have to pin my hope on right now. Okay, so You look skeptical. I'm like, you look I'm, skeptical. I'm just dying to say, because I just think I get these releases every day pretty much from the Republican National Committee making fun of something Joe Biden said, like saying it was Super Thursday when it was Super Tuesday. And I just, I strongly doubt that when the opponent is Donald Trump, that making gaffes or saying things that factually are not true can really be an attack. I mean, it obviously is. They're using it to attack 
Biden, but like they're without a sense of irony about like the fact that Trump is tweeting things that are factually untrue or, or tweeting the word chalking instead of choking. I just think I wonder in this day and age if we are like post gaff, you know, in terms of like if it's a Biden Trump campaign in yeah. the general election, like they both say crazy batshit stuff. Yeah, they cancel and, each other out. Yeah, and in some ways it's like people got over that with Trump. Every time he said something really crazy last election cycle, whether it was about a gold star parent or you know something offensive that could alienate one voting group or another, everyone thought that was the end of his campaign. And yet somehow it wasn't. And I just, I think in the way the social media universe works now that people are just, it just like, glides right off people. I mean, I Biden... I agree. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry, except for, like, a, if you're a new candidate. Yeah. Like, I think it's tougher. Like, if Pete Buttigieg Probably. were to come out of the yeah. gate and, like, make 12 <laughs> gaffes, he wouldn't be where he wa- right. ended right. up. But, like, I think you're right with Biden and Trump, because people know them, and they're like, well, these are two kind of goofy old are. men. They yeah. say a lot of weird stuff. They get a pass. Yeah. This feels so. like a topic we might revisit the summer, <laughs> uh, over the summer and fall, and, yeah, you know, possibly. maybe two, three, or a dozen times. I I was just going to add one thing on the Bernie strength. Please. I read an interesting data point in one of, I think, some of the Texas coverage this morning. Bernie has won every state west of Texas. So if you look at the map, I mean, I I haven't done the delegate math myself, but like he is strong in the Mountain West, on the West Coast, with especially liberal voters, which tend to be a lot of on the West Coast, and Latinos. Specifically, I think probably newer immigrant Latinos, like Latinos from Mexico and Central America, as opposed to Florida, which is a different crop of Latinos. You're Latino talking about one California, Nevada, Colorado. Yeah. Yeah, Utah, Utah, Utah. Arizona's coming up, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, you know, there's some of those states don't have a huge population, but that could be kind of where he looks now to kind of defend his his chance or his path. That's a that's that's an interesting point. And again, Washington State. It's uh, on Tuesday, it's folks. It's gonna be it's gonna be a big one. Okay, just a, again a quick reminder: we are going to talk about Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg, Mike Bloomberg, and of course Elizabeth Warren, who I think we'll have a lot to say about in a episode that comes out tomorrow. Folks, there's just too much news. What can I tell you? There's just too much news <laughs> for a single episode on a weekly show. So we're going to divide it into two parts. So please uh, tune back in tomorrow. Tune back in is really an anachronism. That's not how it works. Down. Be sure to download the podcast tomorrow as well just for that for that double dip for that uh, for that discussion okay real quick here uh, we are going to shift to my favorite segment where Dave and Emily are going to tell me something new fresh original or insightful out of their reporting uh, that hopefully me and and you the listener have not heard before Emily you're up so, well, I just gave you that fun little Texas factoid, but um, I, I also read uh, yesterday that in Virginia, I thought this was a pretty striking number. Uh, they had 1.3 million people go to the polls in their Super Tuesday vote. I know Virginia is sort of used to be a red state, now it's a swing state, then it was a swing state, now it's almost like a blue state, but their turnout in their Democratic primary was more than even in 2008. I mean, we've seen a lot of states do more than 2016, because that was sort of a, a a low point for a lot of primary turnout, especially on the Democratic side. But I thought it was pretty striking that Virginia, people were so pumped up about this race that it, it even outstripped the Hillary Obama 2008 vote. It was true in Texas as well. Some of the, the turnout woes from Iowa and some of the other contests seem to have abated a little bit for Democrats, maybe as there's been more clarity mm-hmm. in this race. People, I, I, there's a lot to dive into there. Dave, you're up. 15 days is the number I want our listeners to sit with, because it was 15 days ago that we were going into the ninth debate in Nevada, 
and Mike Bloomberg was entering his first debate on the ascendance in a lot of polls. It was before Elizabeth Warren eviscerated him in not one but two debates. It was before you had Joe Biden resurgence in South Carolina, before the endorsements of Buttigieg and Klobuchar and Clyburn. And now we're all the way to the stage where the Super Tuesday comeback and the Elizabeth Warren dropout. That all happened in a span of 15 days. It just shows how quick politics changes. Why does it feel like 15 months? Yes. That, that, that happened we're, the last Nevada debate. We're in it. We're in the thick um, of it. Mine is, uh, just real quick, uh, what is the most important news for the general election that's happened this month? It might not be anything to do with the Democratic primary. It might be the coronavirus. And specifically, if you read some of the new economic forecasts for this year, the economic fallout from the coronavirus, according to Goldman Sachs and others, uh, the GDP projections have been slashed, in particular in the second quarter of, of the second fiscal quarter of this year. Look, if you believe in a lot of the, the academic models of the presidential election, which aren't, don't give you an exact idea of what's going to happen in November, but they, generally speaking, they've been pretty good. That's what matters. That's when people start to really shape their ideas about the economy and the president's performance vis-a-vis the economy. And an economic dip in the second quarter could be really tough for, mm-hmm. for Donald Trump, regardless of who he faces in November. I will say this is an unprecedented situation where a pandemic affects the economy. I don't think anyone knows exactly how that will affect people's views overall of the economy or the president's performance. So just like everything else with Donald Trump, we're dealing with a unique situation here. But look, if that's what you care about, who's going to win in the fall, that really is probably the most important development in the last month, even with everything that's happened in the, in the Democratic primary. Uh, so that is something to keep in mind. Before we exit, I just wanted to say this is Emily today's last show. Sadly. Sadly. We're, we're, we're very sad about it. She is leaving for Greener Pastures at Politico to work the White House beat uh, yeah. as, as an editor. As an editor. As an I editor. I boss people around now. It's like my life's goal. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a big Congrats. moment. <laughs> Thank you. We are, uh, of course, super sad to, to lose her and has been a key part of not just this podcast, but of the McClatchy politics team. So, Emily, good luck uh, to you. you at Politico. I know, you, I know you'll do great. And I was serious when, like I said before the show, we're just going to have you back on uh, at some point. We're just going to grab you and, and have you yeah, back. Yeah, I studio. would love to. I'll be able to talk more about the Trump side of the campaign. Yes. I think so. Yes. I would love to come back. It's definitely bittersweet for me. So okay, well, well, Emily, thank you again, and Dave, thank you for coming back on the show. Absolutely. Um, okay, and thank you to our producer Jeremy Sheeler and to our executive producer Davin Cover, and thank you, our listeners. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. Talk to you tomorrow.